Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. I mean, this was six young girls, 10 years old, one of them. And the oldest was 18. And over the course of 17 months, these girls were abducted, uh, sexually assaulted, we believe all of them, although some by the time they were found were too badly decomposed to know for certain. Most were strangled. Some were held for days. Some made calls back to their families while they were being held. But these were little girls, and the thing that goes through my brain is, you know, you look at this wanted poster, and you see these beautiful young faces, 10, 12, 13, 16, 17, 18 years old. And to think what these girls must have gone through, and the terror that they faced, and that their families faced, and the terror that their neighborhood faced, I mean, there were mothers warning their little girls that it wasn't safe to walk down to the store anymore because they could be picked up by this man who was a mystery. The idea that we haven't figured out who could have done this in all this time, a half century now, it's hard to believe. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. It's April 25th, 1971 in Southeast Washington, DC. It's a warm spring evening as 13-year-old Carol Denise Spinks heads out of her front door. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is blaring on radios in her neighborhood of Congress Heights and posters for the new film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory dot the street corners she walks past. You see, Carol is on a mission to pick up some snacks from the local 7-Eleven down the street. Her sister, asked her to go pick up some stuff at the 7-Eleven. This is Bruce Lashan. He's been a multimedia correspondent for WUSA 9 in DC for over 25 years. She had a strict household and she was kind of cheating to go out by herself to go to the 7-Eleven, but she went and she made it there. And then sometime on her way back from the store, which was not far from her house, she simply vanished. Her family reports her missing and wait as police try and find any sort of lead that may point them in some sort of direction into where she may be, but no lead comes in time. And it was some six days later 
that her body was found tossed off a roadway, I-295, in the weeds, and she had been both physically and sexually assaulted and then strangled. Um, She was fully dressed, wearing what a little girl would wear, uh, but she didn't have her shoes on. And uh, it was pretty clear upon examination that she um, had been killed a few days earlier. Um, And then it had taken a few days to find her there. Based on her injuries and presumed time of death, the coroner believed that she may have been held for several days before being killed and her body dumped. And then several months pass with no answers. On July 8th, 16-year-old Darlinia Johnson, also from Congress Heights, leaves her house to walk across the river to her summer job in neighboring Prince George's County, Maryland. She was working a summer job at the Oxen Hill Rec Center. But she doesn't show up for work and is reported missing. One witness actually said that they saw her uh, getting into an old black car driven by an African-American male. That was the last time that she was seen. Several days later, police get a report of a possible body on the side of the road of I-295. A police car is dispatched to check out the scene, but they radio in that they did not see anything in the area. Several more days pass, and then they get another call saying that a body is on the side of the freeway. Two people called. One of them may actually have been the killer who called police about Darlinia Johnson. The other was a um, city worker of some kind, And um, some days later, he went back and saw the body still there, and he complained to a friend who was a sergeant in the police department, and they finally got the police to go back. 11 days after Darlinia Johnson disappears, her body is found. And it was just about 15 feet away from Carol Denise Spinks, where Carol had been found. A 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, their bodies discovered uh, just a few feet apart, tossed off of I-295 in the bushes, in the weeds, but not really hidden. By the time her body was discovered, the heat and humidity of summer had decomposed it enough that 1970s forensic technology couldn't get much information from it. The body was so badly decomposed, it was impossible at that time to determine a cause of death or whether she had been sexually assaulted or, or anything like that. Now with two young girls from the same neighborhood kidnapped and murdered, the community is terrified of another victim being targeted. So after the murders of Carol Spinks and Darlinia Johnson, Parents warn their kids, be careful. And so there's some suspicion among investigators that the killer understood that people might be looking for him in the neighborhood in Southeast. And so he went up Northwest for his next victim. Three more weeks pass. On July 27th, 10-year-old Brenda Crockett is sent to the store by her mother. She's on the complete other side of the District of Columbia, the Northwest, miles away from where Carol and Darlinia were abducted and later found. Two hours pass and no Brenda. Her mother leaves the family house to go search for her daughter. A few minutes later, the phone rings. The phone was answered at her house by her 7-year-old sister. 
and there was somebody on the other end of the line. It was Brenda Crockett on the phone, and she was crying. And according to her seven-year-old sister, she said, a white man picked me up and I'm heading home in a cab. She said she thought she was in Virginia and then abruptly there was a noise and she said bye and she hung up. Stunned, Brenda's younger sister tells her mother's boyfriend that Brenda had just called. Several minutes later, the phone rings again. And a boyfriend of Crockett's mother picked up the phone. And again, it was Brenda on the phone. And she asked, did my mother see me? And she said she was alone in a house with a white male. The boyfriend said, get the guy to come to the phone. We want to get you home. We want to talk to him about bringing you home. And there were heavy steps in the background on the phone call and The little girl said, I'll see you, and she hung up. At first, this throws investigators off. A white male kidnapper. They wonder if maybe this could be a copycat. So now there are a lot of investigators who believe that the killer made Crockett, made Brenda call home to throw police off the trail to say that this was a white male who had abducted her or picked her up and that she was in Virginia. But maybe she wasn't in Virginia and maybe it wasn't a white male. Maybe it was an African-American male, as some of the witnesses reported seeing, and maybe she was actually in DC, we don't know. The next day, a hitchhiker is waiting on the Maryland side of Route 50, just outside of DC, when he makes a chilling discovery. And he sees Brenda's body, no shoes, not hidden, just off the highway. She'd been raped, strangled, and a scarf was knotted around her neck. Three bodies dumped on the side of different heavily trafficked roads. All three are missing their shoes. The killer is keeping trophies of his victims. No leads, no idea who could be doing this. Two months later, on October 1st, Nenemoshia Yates, who is just 12 years old, is coming back from her local Safeway in the Northeast when she's abducted. Her body was found dumped on the side of Pennsylvania Avenue just north of D.C., three hours after she was reportedly seen climbing into a blue Volkswagen Beetle. Police tried to locate the vehicle, but it was never seen again. And just like uh, with the other girls, her shoes were missing. And police discovered green fibers all over her clothing, green fibers. She was clean, mostly, but she had these green fibers on her body. And at that time, identifying fibers and connecting them to carpet or whatever was one of the best techniques that investigators had. And so those fibers <clears throat> were important, uh, but ultimately, Never enough evidence to to convict anybody. Now with a fourth victim, the Washington Daily News begins describing the murder of all these girls with a new moniker, the Freeway Phantom. The next month, November 15, 1971, 18-year-old Brenda Denise Woodward was having dinner with some high school classmates. After the meal, she got onto a city bus at 11.30 p.m. to get back to her place on Maryland Avenue. 
her friends last saw her get off the bus at 8th and 8th Street to transfer to a different one. This time, it was only six hours. Six hours uh, later that police discovered her body. Stabbed multiple times, strangled. Um, she was found in a, in a grassy area near Prince George's Hospital, again, uh, just off uh, the highway. Uh, it was November, and when the police found her body, it was covered as though a little kid, as though you were comforting a little child with a, with a coat trying to keep them warm in the, in the cold, the coat laid over her. And in that coat, police in the pocket found a note, the killer taunting them. The note said, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Freeway Phantom. Now, it had only been since the fourth murder that the media had dubbed him the Freeway Phantom. And already with the fifth murder, he's taunting the police with this note. And police are convinced that he actually forced Brenda Woodward to pen the note herself. And they looked at the note and they analyzed the handwriting and they decided that she wasn't stressed when she wrote this. Her hand didn't seem to be shaking. Uh, she used punctuation. It seemed like she was fairly calm, and that has led them, some of the investigators, to suspect that perhaps she knew this man who killed her. But again, the note did not lead them back to her. It was, it was, uh, it was on paper that had pulled from her that had been pulled from her school notebook. After Brenda was killed in November, 10 months passed quietly. The police are no closer to solving this case, and the families are no closer to gaining any form of justice for their murdered loved ones. Some believe that maybe the killer moved on or was picked up for another crime, but that all changes in September of 1972. Diane Williams, 17 years old, a Baloo High School senior, Diane was with her boyfriend. Uh, they both got on buses. Uh, at some point, uh, they separated. Uh, she took another bus at about 11.20 p.m. near his house. Her body was discovered fairly quickly, too. Uh, dumped along 295, just inside the D.C. line. Uh, her shoes also missing. There was semen that investigators were able to recover from her body, but the suspicion is that it was simply her boyfriend's semen. Six kidnappings, six murders, and no leads. Months go by, years go by, and then decades. Investigators, family members in the community always asking, who did this to these young girls? The main suspect was a man named Robert Askins. He lived in the same neighborhood as Carol Spinks and Darlinia Johnson, the first two victims. He was around 50 years old at the time, and what is interesting about Askins is several fold. He lived in the same area as the first two victims and had spent years at the notorious DC mental hospital, St. Elizabeth's, for violent attacks against women. Going back to the 1930s, 
he had allegedly laced whiskey with cyanide and given it to five prostitutes in a brothel. And one of those women died and he was charged with her murder. He was charged with other murders. He was charged with rapes. Uh, he was charged with assaults. He told police at one point that he was a woman hater. He was able to convince the courts kind of repeatedly to let him out of prison or let him out of the psychiatric institution. And he was out during the time of the Freeway Phantom murders. After a 1978 rape allegation, police searched his home thoroughly and even dug up his backyard searching for more clues. The only circumstantial piece of evidence collected was found in his bedside night table. They found a court case, an appeals court opinion. And in that opinion, the judge used the word tantamount. Now, tantamount was, of course, a key word in that note that was found in Brenda Woodward's pocket, in the pocket of the coat that was over her body. And that had police even more suspicious that perhaps he was the freeway phantom. But they never found anything else solid to tie Askins to the murder. And as time went on, most investigators became convinced that he wasn't good for it. Investigators also look at a series of rapes committed by a group of men dubbed the Green Vega Rapists. And so they looked at them and they interviewed them and there was a guy that was incarcerated with them that said one of them may have been the Freeway Phantom that he'd made incriminating statements. But then word that there might have been a break in the Freeway Phantom case got out and there was actually a politician uh, that said that there was a break in the case and that it was tied to the uh, penitentiary at Lorton. And at that point, the jailhouse informant shut up, wouldn't say anything else. The Green Vega rapists all insisted that they didn't have anything to do with it. And once again, what looks like a dead end for these investigators. The 1971 murder of 14-year-old Angela Denise Barnes was thought to have been perpetrated by the Freeway Phantom as well. However, the circumstances of her murder were entirely different. She had been shot rather than strangled, and police later decided Angela's case was separate from the other young women killed. At some point, the cops did look at a couple of ex-cops who had been arrested in the murder of a 14-year-old girl, Angela Barnes. Uh, and they thought that Angela Barnes might have been a victim of the Freeway Phantom. And so they went and looked at these two ex-cops as a possible suspect in the serial murders. And ultimately they decided, no, Barnes was a separate case, that the 14-year-old was a separate case, and that uh, these two ex-cops were not the Freeway Phantom. 50 years have passed with no sign of this case being solved anytime soon. This story has haunted family members and investigators for the nearly half century since these girls were murdered. Uh, it's shaken their lives and it's been, the cases have been opened and reopened and closed 
uh, repeatedly. There have been people that they think might have done it, that they've investigated and then decided they weren't good for it. Today, Prince George's County, where some of the murders took place, says that it still has evidence in the cases. But in D.C., where it started and most of the murders took place, the old tradition was for individual detectives to maintain their own case files. They weren't put in a combined file where they could be kept and recovered even if the case had to be reopened decades later. And so in D.C., much of the evidence has been lost, misplaced, is missing, including all the evidence that might allow police to go back and recover DNA and really give us some solid, clear answers. And that's one of the real tragedies in this case, that simply because it's so old and the systems for maintaining files were so bad that it's unlikely that DC at least would ever be able to put together the physical evidence today to firmly answer the question that many of these families are still haunted by, who did this and why? For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Reed Redman. Spencer, this one is uh, in an area and around uh, Washington, D.C., where we are located. There's just something about it being local that struck a chord with me and obviously just the truly sad nature of this of this story. Yeah, and this was going on during a very uh, – a, a time of great upheaval, right? I mean, you had – civil rights um, movement. Um, Martin Luther King had been assassinated and there were the uh, really violent riots in the wake of that that destroyed a big chunk of uh, the city. Um, and, uh, and then on top of it, you have all of these young black girls that are being kidnapped and murdered. Just a really tough time um, for the city of Washington, D.C., for the district. One of the things about this case is that it really hasn't gotten a lot of attention over the years. It's, there's been a little bit more about it in the last few years, some documentaries and things like that. But compared to, you know, other unidentified serial killers of that era, the obvious example being the Zodiac Killer, even people who follow true crime probably don't know the details of the Freeway Phantom. And I think it's it's fair to say that the fact that there were six black girls that were victims in this case probably has something to do with that. And you have to wonder how the investigation would have looked if six white girls had turned up dead in the 1970s in D.C. There's been some thought on this. Even Bruce Lashan, who, who narrates this piece, he talked about that, that that question has cropped up often of if these were six white girls in a more affluent neighborhood uh, in, in D.C., what would that look like? And we do know that there were two girls that were killed that were white in D.C. during this time, and their killer was found out. Now, you can't really compare. It's not apples to apples. But at the same time, it seemed like there was a lot more pressure to solve those cases. In this particular case, though, there were at one point several dozen, if not a 100 officers loosely connected with solving 
this freeway phantom murder. Now, I don't know if they were all at the same time or if that's over the course of 50 years and they're kind of counting that as, as you know, oh, well, at one time there were 100 cops. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, uh, the racial component of this absolutely uh, is important to uh, think about because uh, it's unfortunately, it's, it's not, not only has it been so long, but with all of the hard evidence kind of disappearing, getting flooded out, not taken care of, it, it doesn't look like uh, this case will, will be solved um, without the ability to go back and look at the physical and possible genealogical DNA evidence that we're seeing other cases be solved with. Spencer, I, I want to talk about the word tantamount and how you brought that up and explained. But just to clarify, so this case goes way back. I mean, you mentioned going back to the 30s. And in the case of this one individual, the, a suspect, he basically, the word tantamount was used in a note, right? And that same word had been used by a judge who had sent him to prison? Yeah, right. he. there were some court documents that were buried kind of in his uh table nightstand next to his bed when the police had raided his house for a 1978 uh, rape that he was, uh, that he had allegedly and was, was eventually convicted for that. But when they raided his house, they were thinking, oh, maybe we could find some things connected with the freeway phantom kidnappings and murders. And they found, you know, this, this court document from one of his previous sentencing and the judge had used tantamount. And apparently with people that knew Robert Askins, he had used that word in his vocabulary. And it's one of those words that's kind of odd. You know, I don't think I've ever used the word tantamount in my speaking all of my years. Um, and, and so it's just an odd word to crop up, you know, multiple times. But again, that's just circumstantial. They didn't find anything else. They found nothing that would connect him to you know, these uh, girls and women that were uh, murdered. You mentioned the lack of evidence. Uh, you said Prince George's County here locally uh, or, or in the D.C. area might have some evidence. But unlike so many of our cases where we have a, a conviction or an arrest or a solution because somebody had the foresight to really preserve and take care of evidence, this is the opposite, where it's just not there and it wasn't taken care of and there's not much to go on here so many so many decades later. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people that are connected with these girls um, are, are, you know, aging out. Many have died. A lot of the cops that started on this case are no longer alive. Um, it's, you know, transitioned through multiple generations of investigators. Prince George County, as it stands now, still says this is an open investigation. And they do have some uh, of a couple of the girls' uh, possessions. But in Washington, D.C., uh, apparently there was a big flood that wiped out a big chunk of the evidence for their potential case against uh, the perpetrator. So uh, as of right now, it is a closed case um, because they just can't move forward until, you know, something new were to be brought forward. And interestingly enough, and completely by coincidence, this case actually started the same year as the case we covered in last week's episode. And we're obviously talking about very, very different crimes, but that case showed that, you know, after 50 years, there's still a possibility that someone could call in with a tip or something like that. And with all the physical evidence issues in this case, it almost feels like that is what would have to happen for any movement on this case. Yeah, I think that there's been there's been some authors and some investigators that have said, you know, because their shoes were missing and there were 
potential other trophies taken from the victims. You know, if someone happens to be digging around, you know, their apartment or their house, or they happen to have a family member that has these things and they are able to make that connection, then that would be something that would be huge in moving forward with trying to find justice for these young girls and their families. Um, but in, yeah, until something were to be brought forward, that's, you know, that big, uh, it, it doesn't look good for the possibility that this case gets solved anytime soon. Spencer, one suspect, I believe, only one was mentioned by name, Askins, right? And what has happened to him? Yeah, Askins actually spent uh, almost the entire remainder of his life uh, in a federal correction institution in Maryland. And he died in 2010 at the age of 91. And so any of the secrets that he was carrying, you know, were lost with him if he was, in fact, connected with these kidnappings and murders of these girls. All right. Thanks, Spencer, for bringing us the story this week. And special thanks to Bruce Lashan at WUSA 9 in Washington, D.C., as well for uh, telling us all about the freeway phantom. I know he's been in the news business and reporting on cases in and around Washington, D.C. for a long time, so he knows a good amount about this one. Spencer, where can people talk about this story, other stories we've covered, and learn more? Yeah, we've got a uh, Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault where you can chat about this case and other Vault Studios productions. Um, It's just a a great collection of of true crime fans that have all sorts of good discussion about uh, different true crime things. Yeah, and if you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any other place that you can find a podcast. You can also follow uh, True Crime Chronicles on Facebook and follow Vault Studios on Facebook and Twitter. All right, thanks, Reed, and thank you, Spencer. We will be back next week with a story about a guy who's been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list in Texas and a significant breakthrough there. We'll tell you about it uh, next week. Along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig for Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson.